This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. The April 30th, 1898 issue of the Publishers Weekly announced the publication of The Open Boat and Other Tales of Adventure. Its author, Stephen Crane, was 27 years old at the time. His novella, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, had been published only five years earlier. The Red Badge of Courage came two years after that. The title story, The Open Boat, is based on Crane's real-life experience while serving as a journalist corresponding from the Cuban War of Independence. The steamship on which he was traveling, the SS Commodore, hit a sandbar and sank. Crane was one of the last to escape, using a dinghy which overturned as he and others attempted to reach shore. The young journalist's report of the disaster made the front page of the newspaper three days after the rescue. Though the open boat was inspired by a true event, the story is fictional. It follows four characters as they try to find their way back to land after their disaster at sea. Only one character is named, the oiler, Billy. Billy is the strongest of the group, and the one Crane wrote most sympathetically about. And now, our story, The Open Boat, by Stephen Crane. Part 1 None of them knew the color of the sky. Their eyes glanced level and were fastened upon the waves that swept toward them. These waves were of the hue of slate, save for the tops, which were a foaming white, and all of the men knew the colors of the sea. The horizon narrowed and widened, and dipped and rose, and at all times its edge was jagged with waves that seemed thrust up in points like rocks. Many a man ought to have a bathtub larger than the boat which here rode upon the sea. These waves were most wrongfully and barbarously abrupt and tall, and each froth top was a problem in small boat navigation. The cook squatted in the bottom and looked with both eyes at the six inches of gunwale that separated him from the ocean. His sleeves were rolled over his fat forearms and the two flaps of his unbuttoned vest dangled as he bent to bail out the boat. Often he said, God, that was a narrow clip. As he remarked it, he invariably gazed eastward over the broken sea. The oiler, steering with one of the two oars in the boat, sometimes raised himself suddenly to keep clear of water that swirled in over the stern. It was a thin little oar, and it seemed ready to snap. The correspondent, pulling at the other oar, watched the waves and wondered why he was there. The injured captain, lying in the bow, was at this time buried in that profound dejection and indifference which comes, temporarily at least, to even the bravest and most enduring when, willy-nilly, the firm pales, the army loses, the ship goes down. The mind of the master of a vessel is rooted deep in the timbers of her. 
though he commanded for a day or a decade, and this captain had on him the stern impression of a scene in the grays of dawn of seven turn faces, and later a stump of a topmast with a white ball on it that slashed to and fro at the waves, went lower and lower and down. Thereafter there was something strange in his voice. Although steady, it was deep with mourning and of a quality beyond oration or tears. Keep her a little more south, Billy, said he. A little more south, sir, said the oiler in the stern. A seat in this boat was not unlike a seat upon a bucking bronco, and by the same token, a bronco is not much smaller. The craft pranced and reared and plunged like an animal. As each wave came and she rose for it, she seemed like a horse making it a fence outrageously high. The manner of her scramble over these walls of water is a mystic thing, and, moreover, at the top of them were ordinarily these problems in whitewater, the foam racing down from the summit of each wave, requiring a new leap, and a leap from the air. Then, after scornfully bumping a crest, she would slide, and race, and splash down a long incline, and arrive bobbing and nodding in front of the next menace. A singular disadvantage of the sea lies in the fact that after successfully surmounting one wave, you discover that there is another behind it, just as important, and just as nervously anxious to do something effective in the way of swamping boats. In a ten-foot dinghy, one can get the idea of the resources of the sea in the line of the waves that is not probable to the average experience of a man who's never been at sea in a dinghy. As each slaty wall of water approached, it shut all else from the view of the men in the boat. It was not difficult to imagine that this particular wave was the final outburst of the ocean, the last effort of the grim water. There was a terrible grace in the movement of the waves, and they came in in silence, save for the snarling of the crests. In the wan light, the faces of the men must have been gray. Their eyes must have glinted in strange ways as they gazed steadily astern. Viewed from a balcony, the whole thing would doubtless have been weirdly picturesque. But the men in the boat had no time to see it, and if they had had leisure, there were other things to occupy their minds. The sun swung steadily up in the sky, and they knew it was broad day because the color of the sea changed from slate to emerald green, streaked with amber lights, and the foam was like tumbling snow. The process of the breaking day was unknown to them, they were aware only of this effect upon the color of the waves that rolled toward them. In disjointed sentences, the cook and the correspondent argued as to the difference between a life-saving station and a house of refuge. The cook had said, There's a house of refuge just north of the Mosquito Inlet Light, and as soon as they see us, they'll come off in their boat and pick us up. As soon as who sees us? said the correspondent. The crew! said the cook. Houses of refuge don't have crews, said the correspondent. As I understand them, they're only places where clothes and grub are stored for the benefit of shipwrecked people. They don't carry crews. Oh, yes, they do, said the cook. No, they don't, said the correspondent. Well, we're not there yet anyhow, said the oiler in the stern. Well, said the cook, Perhaps it's not a house of refuge that I'm thinking of as being near Mosquito Inlet Light. Perhaps it's a life-saving station. We're not there yet, 
said the oiler, in the stern. Part Two As the boat bounced from the top of each wave, the wind tore through the hair of the hatless men, and as the craft plopped her stern down again, the spray splashed past them. The crest of each of these waves was a hill, from the top of which the men surveyed, for a moment, a broad, tumultuous expanse, shining and wind-riven. It was probably splendid. It was probably glorious, this play of the free sea, wild with lights of emerald and white and amber. "'Bully good thing it's an onshore wind,' said the cook. "'If not, where would we be? Wouldn't have a show.' "'That's right,' said the correspondent. The busy oiler nodded his assent. Then the captain in the bow chuckled in a way that expressed humor, contempt, tragedy, all in one. "'Do you think we got much of a show now, boys?' said he. Whereupon the three were silent, save for a trifle of hemming and hawing. To express any particular optimism at this time, they felt to be childish and stupid, but they all doubtless possessed this sense of the situation in their mind. A young man thinks doggedly at such times. On the other hand, the ethics of their condition was decidedly against any open suggestion of hopelessness, so they were silent. Oh, well, said the captain, soothing his children. We'll get ashore, all right. But there was that in his tone which made them think. So the oiler quoth, Yes, if this wind holds. The cook was bailing. Yeah, if we don't catch hell in the surf. Canton flannel gulls flew near and far. Sometimes they sat down on the sea, near patches of brown seaweed that rolled on the waves with a movement like carpets on a line in a gale. The birds sat comfortably in groups, and they were envied by some in the dinghy, for the wrath of the sea was no more to them than it was to a covey of prairie chickens a thousand miles inland. Often they came very close and stared at the men with black bead-like eyes. At these times they were uncanny and sinister in their unblinking scrutiny, and the men hooted angrily at them, telling them to be gone. One came and evidently decided to alight on top of the captain's head. The bird flew parallel to the boat and did not circle but made short sidelong jumps in the air in chicken fashion. His black eyes were wistfully fixed upon the captain's head. Ugly brute, said the oiler to the bird. You look as if you were made with a jackknife. The cook and the correspondent swore darkly at the creature. The captain naturally wished to knock it away with the end of the heavy painter, but he did not dare do it, because anything resembling an emphatic gesture would have capsized this freighted boat and so with his open hand, the captain gently and carefully waved the gull away. After it had been discouraged from the pursuit, the captain breathed easier on account of his hair, and others breathed easier because the birds struck their minds at this time as being somehow gruesome and ominous. In the meantime, the oiler and the correspondent rowed, and also they rowed. They sat together in the same seat, and each rowed an oar, then the oiler took both oars. Then the correspondent took both oars. Then the oiler. Then the correspondent. They rowed and they rowed. The very ticklish part of the business was when the time came for the reclining one in the stern to take his turn at the oars. By the very last star of truth, it is easier to steal eggs from under a hen than it was to change seats in that dinghy. 
First the man in the stern slid his hand along the thwart and moved with care, as if he were of Cirrus. Then the man in the rowing seat slid his hand along the other thwart. It was all done with most extraordinary care. As the two sidled past each other, the whole party kept watchful eyes on the coming wave, and the captain cried, Look out now! Steady there! The brown mats of seaweed that appeared from time to time were like islands, bits of earth. They were traveling, apparently, neither one way nor the other. They were, to all intents, stationary. They informed the men in the boat that it was making progress slowly toward the land. The captain, rearing cautiously in the bow, after the dinghy soared on a great swell, said that he had seen the lighthouse at Mosquito Inlet. Presently the cook remarked that he had seen it. The correspondent was at the oars then, and for some reason he too wished to look at the lighthouse, but his back was toward the far shore, and the waves were important, and for some time he could not seize an opportunity to turn his head. But at last there came a wave more gentle than the others, and when at the crest of it, he swiftly scoured the western horizon. See it? said the captain. No, said the correspondent slowly. I didn't see anything. Look again, said the captain. He pointed. It's exactly in that direction. At the top of another wave, the correspondent did as he was bid, and this time his eyes chanced on a small, still thing on the edge of the swaying horizon. It was precisely like the point of a pin. It took an anxious eye to find a lighthouse so tiny. You think we'll make it, Captain? If the wind holds and the boat don't swamp, we can't do much else, said the captain. The little boat, lifted by each towering sea and splashed viciously by the crest, made progress that in the absence of seaweed was not apparent to those in her. She seemed just a wee thing wallowing miraculously top up at the mercy of five oceans. Occasionally a great spread of water, like white flames, swarmed into her. Baylor, cook, said the captain, serenely. All right, captain, said the cheerful cook. We'll return to part three right after this sponsor message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now we return to part three of The Open Boat by Stephen Crane. It would be difficult to describe the subtle brotherhood of men that was here established on the seas. No one said that it was so. No one mentioned it. But it dwelt in the boat, and each man felt it warm him. They were a captain, an oiler, a cook, and a correspondent. And they were friends, friends in a more curiously iron-bound degree than may be common. The hurt captain, lying against a water jar in the bow, spoke always in a low voice and calmly, but he could never command a more ready and swiftly obedient crew than the motley three of the dinghy. It was more than a mere recognition of what was best for the common safety. There was surely in it a quality that was personal and heartfelt. And after this devotion to the commander of the boat, 
There was this comradeship that the correspondent, for instance, who had been taught to be cynical of men, knew even at the time was the best experience of his life. But no one said that was so. No one mentioned it. I wish we had a sail, remarked the captain. We might dry my overcoat on the end of an oar and give you two boys a chance to rest. So the cook and the correspondent held the mast and spread wide the overcoat. The oilers steered, and the little boat made good way with her new rig. Sometimes the oiler had to scull sharply to keep a sea from breaking into the boat, but otherwise sailing was a success. Meanwhile, the lighthouse had been growing slowly larger. It had now almost assumed color and appeared like a little gray shadow on the sky. The man at the oars could not be prevented from turning his head rather often to try for a glimpse of this little gray shadow. At last, from the top of each wave, the men in the tossing boat could see land. Even as the lighthouse was an upright shadow on the sky, this land seemed but a long black shadow on the sea. It certainly was thinner than paper. We must be about opposite New Smyrna, said the cook, who had coasted this shore often in schooners. Captain, by the way, I believe they abandoned that life-saving station there about a year ago. Did they? said the captain. The wind slowly died away. The cook and the correspondent were not now obliged to slave in order to hold high the oar. But the waves continued their old impetuous swooping at the dinghy, and the little craft, no longer underway, struggled woundily over them. The oiler or the correspondent took the oars again. Shipwrecks are apropos of nothing. If men could only train for them and have them occur when the men had reached pink condition, there would be less drowning at sea. Of the four in the dinghy, none had slept any time worth mentioning for two days and two nights previous to embarking in the dinghy, and in the excitement of clambering about the deck of a foundering ship, they had also forgotten to eat heartily. For these reasons, and for others, neither the oiler nor the correspondent was fond of rowing at this time. The correspondent wondered ingenuously how in the name of all that was sane could there be people who thought it amusing to row a boat. It was not an amusement. It was a diabolical punishment. And even a genius of mental aberrations could never conclude that it was anything but a horror to the muscles and a crime against the back. He mentioned to the boat in general how the amusement of rowing struck him, and the weary-faced oilers smiled in full sympathy. Previously to the foundering, by the way, the oiler had worked double watch in the engine room of the ship. Take her easy now, boys, said the captain. Don't spend yourselves. If we have to run a surf, you'll need all your strength, because we'll sure have to swim for it. Take your time. Slowly the land arose from the sea. From a black line it became a line of black and a line of white, trees and sand. Finally the captain said that he could make out a house on the shore. That's the house of a refuge, sure, said the cook. They'll see us before long and come out after us. The distant lighthouse reared high. The keeper ought to be able to make us out now if he's looking through a glass, said the captain. He'll notify the life-saving people. None of those other boats could have got ashore to give word of the wreck, said the oiler in a low voice. Else the lifeboat would be out now hunting us. Slowly and beautiful the land loomed out of the sea. The wind came again. 
It had veered from the northeast to the southeast. Finally, a new sound struck the ears of the men in the boat. It was the low thunder of the surf on the shore. We'll never be able to make the lighthouse now, said the captain. Swing her head a little more north, Billy. A little more north, sir, said the oiler. Whereupon the little boat turned her nose once more down the wind, and all but the oarsmen watched the shore grow. Under the influence of this expansion, doubt and direful apprehension was leaving the minds of the men. The management of the boat was still most absorbing, but it could not prevent a quiet cheerfulness. In an hour, perhaps, they would be ashore. Their backbones had become thoroughly used to balancing in the boat, and they now rode this wild colt of a dinghy like circus men. The correspondent thought that he'd been drenched to the skin, but happening to feel in the top pocket of his coat, he found therein eight cigars. Four of them were soaked with seawater, and four were perfectly scathless. After a search, somebody produced three dry matches, and thereupon the four waifs rode impudently in their little boat, and with an assurance of an impending rescue shining in their eyes, puffed at the big cigars, and judged well and ill of all men. Everybody took a drink of water. Part 4 Cook, remarked the captain, there don't seem to be any signs of life about your house of refuge. Nah, replied the cook, funny they don't see us. A broad stretch of lowly coast lay before the eyes of the men. It was of dunes topped with dark vegetation. The roar of the surf was plain, and sometimes they could see the white lip of a wave as it spun up the beach. A tiny house was blocked out black upon the sky. Southward, the slim lighthouse lifted its little gray length. Tide, wind, and waves were swinging the dinghy northward. Funny they don't see us, said the men. The surf's roar was here dulled, but its tone was, nevertheless, thunderous and mighty. As the boat swam over the great rollers, the men sat listening to this roar. "'We'll swamp, sure,' said everybody. It is fair to say here that there was not a life-saving station within twenty miles in either direction, but the men did not know this fact, and in consequence they made dark and opprobrious remarks concerning the eyesight of the nation's lifesavers. Four scowling men sat in the dinghy and surpassed records in the invention of epithets. Funny they don't see us. The lightheartedness of a former time had completely faded. To their sharpened minds it was easy to conjure pictures of all kinds of incompetency and blindness, and indeed, cowardice. There was the shore of the populous land, and it was bitter and bitter to them that from it came no sign. Well, said the captain, ultimately, I suppose we'll have to make a try for ourselves. If we stay out here too long, will none of us have strength left to swim after the boat swamps. And so the oiler, who was at the oars, turned the boat straight for the shore. There was a sudden tightening of muscle. There was some thinking. If we don't all get ashore, said the captain, if we don't all get ashore, I suppose you fellows know where to send news of my finish. They then briefly exchanged some addresses and admonitions. As for the reflections of the men, there was a great deal of rage in them. Perchance they might be formulated thus. If I'm going to be drowned, if I'm going to be drowned, 
if I'm going to be drowned, why, in the name of the seven mad gods who rule the sea, was I allowed to come thus far and contemplate sand and trees? Was I brought here merely to have my nose dragged away as I was about to nibble the sacred cheese of life? It is preposterous. If this old ninny woman, fate, cannot do better than this, she should be deprived of the management of men's fortunes. She's an old hen who knows not her intention. If she has decided to drown me, why did she not do it in the beginning and save me all this trouble? The whole affair is absurd. But no, she cannot mean to drown me. She dare not drown me. She cannot drown me. Not after all this work. Afterward, the man might have had an impulse to shake his fist at the clouds. Just you drown me now! And then hear what I call you! The billows that came at this time were more formidable. They seemed always just about to break and roll over the little boat in a turmoil of foam. There was a preparatory and long growl in the speech of them. No mind unused to the sea would have concluded that the dinghy could ascend these sheer heights in time. The shore was still afar. The oiler was a wily surf man. Boys, he said swiftly, she won't live three minutes more, and we're too far out to swim. Shall I take her to sea again, Captain? Yes, go ahead, said the Captain. This oiler, by a series of quick miracles, and fast and steady oarsmanship turned the boat in the middle of the surf and took her safely to sea again. There was a considerable silence as the boat bumped over the furrowed sea to deeper water. Then somebody in gloom spoke. Well, anyhow, they must have seen us from the shore by now. The gulls went in slanting flight up the wind toward the gray, desolate east. A squall marked by dingy clouds and clouds brick red, like smoke from a burning building, appeared from the southeast. What do you think of these life-saving people? Ain't they peaches? Funny they haven't seen us. Maybe they think we're out here for sport. Maybe they think we're fishing. Maybe they think we're damn fools. It was a long afternoon. A changed tide tried to force them southward, but the wind and waves said northward. Far ahead, where coastline, sea, and sky formed their mighty angle, there were little dots which seemed to indicate a city on the shore. St. Augustine? The captain shook his head. Nah, too near Mosquito Inlet. And the oiler rowed, and then the correspondent rowed, then the oiler rowed. It was a weary business. The human back can become the seat of more aches and pains than are registered in books for the composite anatomy of a regiment. It is a limited area, but it can become the theater of innumerable muscular conflicts, tangles, wrenches, knots, and other comforts. Did you ever like to row, Billy? asked the correspondent. No, said the oiler. Hang it. When one exchanged the rowing seat for a place in the bottom of the boat, he suffered a bodily depression that caused him to be careless of everything save an obligation to wiggle one finger. There was cold seawater swashing to and fro in the boat, and he lay in it. His head, pillowed on a thwart, was within an inch of the swirl of the wave crest, and sometimes a particularly obstreperous sea came inboard and drenched him once more. But these matters did not annoy him. 
it is almost certain that if the boat had capsized, he would have tumbled comfortably out upon the ocean as if he felt sure that it was a great, soft mattress. Look, there's a man on the shore. Where? There. See him? Yeah, sure. He's walking along. Now he's stopped. Look. He's facing us. He's waving at us. So he is, by thunder. Ah, now we're all right. There'll be a boat out here for us in half an hour. He's going on. He's running. He's going up to that house there. The remote beach seemed lower than the sea, and it required a searching glance to discern the little black figure. The captain saw a floating stick, and they rowed to it. A bath towel was by some weird chance in the boat, and, tying this on the stick, the captain waved it. The oarsman did not dare turn his head, so he was obliged to ask questions. What's he doing now? He's standing still again. He's looking, I think. There he goes again, toward the house. Now he's stopped again. Is he waving at us? No, not now. He was, though. Look, there comes another man. He's running. Look at him go, would you? Yeah, he's on a bicycle. Now he's met the other man. They're both waving at us. Look. There comes something up the beach. What the devil is that thing? Why, it looks like a boat. Yeah, that's a boat. No, it's on wheels. Yeah, so it is. That must be the lifeboat. They dragged them along shore on a wagon. Yeah, that's the lifeboat, sure. No, it's an omnibus. I tell you, it's a lifeboat. No, it's not. It's an omnibus. I can see it plain. See? One of those big hotel omnibuses. By thunder, you're right. It's an omnibus. Sure as fate. What do you suppose they're doing with an omnibus? Maybe they're going around collecting the life crew, eh? That's it, likely. Look, there's a fellow waving a little black flag. He's standing on the steps of the omnibus. There come those other two fellows. Now they're all talking together. Look at the fellow with the flag. Maybe he ain't waving it. That ain't a flag, is it? That's his coat. Yeah, that's his coat. So it is, it's his coat. He's taking it off. He's waving it around his head. But would you look at him swing it? Oh, say, there isn't any life-saving station there. That's just a winter resort hotel omnibus that's brought over some of the boarders to see us drown. What's that idiot with the coat mean? What's he signaling anyhow? It looks as if he were trying to tell us to go north. There must be a life-saving station up there. Nah, he thinks we're fishing. Just giving us a merry hand, see? Ah, there, Willie. Well, I wish I could make something out of those signals. What do you suppose he means? He don't mean anything. He's just playing. Well, if he'd just signal us to try the surf again, or go to the sea and wait, or go north, or south, or go to hell, there'd be some reason in it. But look at him. He just stands there and keeps his coat revolving like a wheel. The ass. There come more people. Now there's quite a mob. Look, isn't that a boat? Where? Oh, I see what you mean. No, that's no boat. 
That fellow's still waving his coat. He must think we like to see him do that. Why don't he quit it? It don't mean anything. I don't know. I think he's trying to make us go north. It must be that there's a life-saving station there somewhere. Say, he ain't tired yet. Look at him wave. Yeah, I wonder how long he can keep that up. He's been revolving his coat ever since he caught sight of us. He's an idiot. Why aren't they getting men to bring a boat out? A fishing boat. One of those big yawls. Come out here, all right. Why don't he do something? Oh, it's all right now. They'll have a boat out here for us in less than no time, now that they've seen us. A faint yellow tone came into the sky over the low land. The shadows on the sea slowly deepened. The wind bore coldness with it, and the man began to shiver. Holy smoke, said one, allowing his voice to express his impious mood. If we keep on monkeying out here, if we got to flounder out here all night, oh, we'll never have to stay here all night. Don't you worry. They've seen us now. It won't be long before they come chasing out after us. The shore grew dusky. The man waving a coat blended gradually into this gloom and it swallowed in the same manner the omnibus and the group of people. The spray, when it dashed uproariously over the side, made the voyagers shrink and swear like men who were being branded. I'd like to catch the chump who waved the coat. I feel like soaking him one just for luck. Why, what did he do? Ah, oh, nothing. But he seemed so damn cheerful. In the meantime, the oiler rode, and then the correspondent rode, and then the oiler rode. Gray-faced and bowed forward, they mechanically, turn by turn, plied the leaden oars. The form of the lighthouse had vanished from the southern horizon, but finally a pale star appeared, just lifting from the sea. The streaked saffron in the west passed before the all-merging darkness, and the sea to the east was black. The land had vanished, and was expressed only by the low and drear thunder of the surf. If I am going to be drowned, if I am going to be drowned, if I am going to be drowned, why in the name of seven mad gods who rule the sea was I allowed to come thus far and contemplate sand and trees? Was I brought here merely to have my nose dragged away as I was about to nibble the sacred cheese of life? The patient captain drooped over the water jar, was sometimes obliged to speak to the oarsman. Keep her head up. Keep her head up. Keeping her head up, sir. The voices were weary and low. This was surely a quiet evening. All save the oarsman lay heavily and listlessly in the boat's bottom. As for him... His eyes were just capable of noting the tall black waves that swept forward in a most sinister silence, save for an occasional subdued growl of a crest. The cook's head was on a thwart, and he looked without interest at the water under his nose. He was deep in other scenes. Finally he spoke. Billy, he murmured, dreamfully, what kind of pie do you like best? Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the conclusion of The Open Boat by Stephen Crane. Also, I'd like everyone out there to know that 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre is now at Apple. All you have to do is search at 1001 Ghost Stories. And it should be hitting a lot of other host sites as well. And you can always catch all our episodes from all our shows at 1001storiespodcast.com.
You'll find some great entertainment at 1001 Radio Days, where we play the old detective shows, and shows like the Texas Ranger and Dragnet, or 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where right now you can catch up with Bram Stoker's story, Greatest Love, which is a white-knuckled story you should enjoy very, very much, or 1001 Stories for the Road, where we just started the Arthur Conan Doyle adventure, A Study in Scarlet, which was his first Sherlock Holmes mystery. We bring all new shows forward every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Please do share them with a friend, and please do subscribe. Subscribing is the number one way that we move forward in the rankings at Apple. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.